Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to James Brown, the godfather of soul, born James Joe Brown Jr. on this day in history, May 3rd, 1933. In a one-room shack in the woods of Barnwell, South Carolina, a few miles east of the Georgia border. His parents split when he was very young, and at the age of four, Brown was sent to Augusta, Georgia to live with his Aunt Honey, the madam of a brothel. Good start. Growing up in poverty during the Great Depression, a young Brown worked whatever odd jobs he could find. For literally pennies, he danced for the soldiers at nearby Fort Gordon, picked cotton, washed cars, shined shoes. Here, James Brown talks about the ambition he had as a child. My ambition was to eat. We were very hungry. We were, we were very poor people. And, and singing was one way my music was able. I was able to earn a, a living. Mm-hmm. I was able to... We were living in a home one time where we had over 19 people in the home and the rent was only $5 a month. And they couldn't get it. And I went and tap danced for the soldiers and made $12. Was able to pay the rent for, twi- for two months. So that's what music was for me I had I was able to go out and get and make a decent life for myself like some people started to be a secretary a secretary an interviewer a cameraman an actor or whatever I was able to go with music and I was able to God gave me this inside uh, talent and uh, this inside vision and be able to, to make myself very very much uh, aware and, and independent in my music and I'm very lucky very lucky indeed God given talent and he seized upon it early. Dismissed from school at the age of 12 for insufficient clothing, Brown turned to working his various odd jobs full-time. As an escape from the harsh reality of growing up black in the rural South during the Great Depression, Brown turned to religion and to music. He sang in the church choir, where he developed his powerful and uniquely emotive voice. As a teen, Brown turned to crime, though, and at age 16, he was arrested for stealing a car and sentenced to three years in prison. While incarcerated, Brown organized and led a prison gospel choir and met Bobby Bird. Here, James Brown talks about how prison changed his life. At the age of 16 years old, I was in the Jewish delinquent in Lord in, 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 uh, in uh, Rome, Georgia. And I got out of there. I was probably before I went there in school. But uh, I believe the people around here see that it was a need to bring me up, to raise me. I think they put me in prison to raise me. Because the people around here, I, my father told me that uh, my dad, is, it, it told my father that uh, that was the best place for James to go. They let me play the piano there. And I drew those kids and they went crazy. I sang gospel. And everything I touched turned to gold in a way of bringing people together. Always a gifted athlete. Upon his release from prison in 1953, Brown turned his attention to sports and devoted the next two years primarily to boxing and playing semi-pro baseball. But in 1955, Bobby Bird invited Brown to join his R&B vocal group, the Gospel Starlighters. Brown accepted. 
and with his overbearing talent and showmanship, he quickly became the dominant force in that group. Renamed the famous Flames, they moved to Macon, Georgia, where they performed at local nightclubs. Here, again, James Brown talks about this important time in his young life. It was very, very hard. I, from 1955, 56, until uh, my re- release, please, 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 I recorded it last in 55, and we released it. We released it in 56. It was very hard. Uh, please, please, a dynamite song, a high-energy show. But then when I got Try Me in 59, uh-huh. it began, I hit the pop charts, and I began to see the world. Things started happening for me. In 1956, as he said, the Flames recorded a demo tape of that song, Please, 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 and played it for Ralph Bass, a talent scout for King Records. He offered the group a record contract, and within months, Please, Please, Please had reached number six on the R&B charts. Here, James Brown talks about meeting Ralph and what happened next. A fellow was named by the name of Ralph Bass. He was on his way to... He was going through uh, Macon, Georgia, en route, I think, to New Orleans, and he stopped over. And he heard this record on the air, and everybody was started jumping up and down. He was sitting in the bus station, saying, who's this guy? I never heard that record before. They say, it's not really a record. It's a local group. It's a local group. Who's that? It says, James Brown and the Famous Flames. And it was one of the old records that you play inside out. <laughs> Believe that? And you run real fast, you know. And uh, he uh, went to see my manager. And we were in Tampa, Florida, and uh, they called us and wanted us, wanted us to come to Cincinnati, Ohio, and record it for King Records under the, under the supervision of Mr. Nathan, Sid Nathan. And uh, we had to drive 900 miles. The first time I've ever stayed in a hotel with a television. And uh, I was really proud, and, and we worked very hard. You don't forget a thing like that, do you? The Flames immediately hit the road, touring the Southeast while opening for such legendary musicians as B.B. King and Ray Charles. Imagine the education James got out on that road. But the band didn't have a repeat hit to match the success of Please, Please, Please. And by the end of 57, the Flames had returned home. Needing a creative spark and in danger of losing his record deal, in 1958, Brown moved to New York City. We're working with different musicians whom he also called the Flames, recorded Try Me. The song reached number one on the R&B charts, cracked the 100 singles chart, and kick-started Brown's music career. He soon followed with a string of hits that included Lost Someone, Night Train, and Prisoner of Love. His first song to crack the top ten on the pop charts, peaking at number two. This is Lee Habib, the life of James Brown, born on this day in history. The rest of this remarkable life story, starting from nothing, from abject poverty to be one of the great stars in the history of the music business. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. On this day in history, James Brown was born. And there's no more iconic song than this one. And again, remember, now that you know, Brown's father, his papa got a brand new bag. And he didn't have one. And so when he sings about this, he knows from whence he sings. From his own personal experience, Stevie Wonder would dig deep in this well as well. So many great African-American artists would do the same. On a single night, and a very important night in Brown's life, October 24, 1962, Brown recorded a live concert album that would change his life at the legendary Apollo Theater uptown in New York City in a place called Harlem. Initially opposed by King Records because it featured no new songs. Oh, the horror. Live at the Apollo proved Brown's greatest commercial success yet, peaking at number two on the pop album charts and firmly establishing his crossover appeal. Here's the introduction to James Brown and the famous Flames by Fats Gonder from that recording. The band starts their set by playing I'll Go Crazy. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you, and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business, man that's saying, I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think. If you want me, I don't mind. Bewilder. Million dollar seller lost someone. The very latest release, Night Train. Let's everybody shout and shimmy. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame. You know I feel all right. You know I feel all right, children. I feel all right. James Brown went on to record many of his most popular and enduring singles during the mid-60s, including I Got You, Papa's got a brand new bag, and it's a man's, man's, man's world. With its unique rhythmic quality, he achieved all of it by essentially reducing his band to one giant percussive instrument. Papa's got a brand new bag is considered the first of a new genre called funk, an offshoot of soul and a precursor of hip-hop. In the mid-60s, Brown also began devoting more and more energy to social causes. In 1966, he recorded Don't Be a Dropout, an impassioned plea to the black community to place more focus on education. Here, James Brown talks about education in his own community. The education uh, is one thing everybody needs. We must admit that there are certain people, ethnic people around the world, who are more or less fortunate and do... uh, Greed, they were deprived of uh, getting a lot of things. Uh, but uh, I helped the black more and deal with the black because I was closer to that environment. That's my environment. And 
I felt there was a reason for me to do it. Very proud. I feel that a man shouldn't be deprived because of the color of his skin. Uh, uh, he should be judged by the contents of his character and his knowledge. And uh, if they haven't had chance, much chance and much opportunity to get an education, it's hard to deal with it. So I felt it was my, my privilege and my honor, and, and, and it was my job and my duty. And I'm very proud. And uh, regardless of what your color is, just be proud and do what you have to do. But it's not about color. It's neither black or white. It's what's right. It's neither white or black. It's the fact. You got to have it together. Now a good friend of mine sat with me and he cried He told me a story I know he hadn't lied He said he went for a job and this a man said Without an education you might as well be dead Now don't get me wrong, he said it's not who you are Cause people come to me from a near and far But I do just work and I follow the rules didn't have an education, so I had to go back to school. My friend told all his buddies that he loved so well. And all their personal troubles, I will not tell. Now those guys didn't seem good, and they didn't seem bad. They didn't seem so happy, and I know they weren't sad. But the point is it that they follow the rules. They got an education, and they all finished school. Now underneath his heel, I could see the truth back When he dropped out of school, he never, never went back The got, the got to listen now, now Without an education On April 5th, 1968, the day after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination With riots raging across the country, Brown gave a rare televised live concert in Boston in an attempt to prevent rioting there. His effort succeeded. Young Bostonians stayed home to watch the concert on TV, and the city largely avoided violence. We've been pretty fast talking about as sure as you moan. Just as sure as it takes two eyes to make a pair. <laughs> Brother, we can't quit until we get our share. In 1979, an optimistic Brown said that racial tension was more of an economic issue and that young people have erased the issue. Brown goes on to describe money as the root of all evil. The race problem has wound up being an economical problem. I think it was used for advantages in the hearts of people. The young kids today don't have time for that job. That's that's stupid. And they realize it and they they go out and they're more bold and, and more aggressive and they say, hey... I'm going to love the cat if he's together. Uh, don't love me because I'm black or white. Love me because I'm right and because I got soul. The young kids today have erased that problem. Uh, naturally, uh, America had a tremendous chance. Any Western country had a chance, like Europe at one point, then it moved on to America. and had a great opportunity. Canada, all of them had a great opportunity. But I think it was so much wealth and money is the root of all evil. Uh, like I said, money won't change you. And uh, sometimes people forgot that they thought if they had money, they could do anything. And uh, kind of made a mistake. I believe the country will get itself together uh, later on. The, the economical problem is, is put everybody kind of in their place. 
And God bless America, God bless the world, God bless every race and every nationality. A slightly different tone, a slightly more mature man. The career started to wane in the 70s, but in the 80s, something special happened. The Blues Brothers, Living in America, which featured prominently in Rocky IV. And then we get a context. We start to really look back at this man, his talent. And here is James talking about how his music, in the end, was really 20 years ahead of its time. Things like Sex Machine and uh, Hot Pants... uh... It's 20 years ahead of their time. So what it is, the people are trying to find out what we're doing. And that's been why my band, when they play people, they, they can't get the people off the, to sit down because of the things that we do, you know. It's so different, you know, because they're unwritten stuff. See, we changed the musical structure in 1965 with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag because music was written on two and four and on the up-tempo. And now we play it on the downbeats, which is totally different. Want to go out? with a man's 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 world and take a listen to what in the end James was. He was a great dancer. He was a heck of a showman. But what a pure singer. What a singer. And so we leave you with this on James Brown's day of birth and this day in history. This is Our American Stories. Again, the life of James Brown, born on this day in history. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and even public policy when it hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. You might be asking, what the heck am I listening to? And if you've been listening closely, you might be asking, are they rapping about the founding fathers? Or you might be saying... That's one of my favorite songs. This song, Guns and Ships, was from the Broadway musical Hamilton. The surprising smash hit given that it was a musical about a founding father. Alexander Hamilton, 
and a musical that used the genre of rap to talk about a dead white founding father at that. But come on, tell me you're at least not somewhat intrigued by this absurdity. That's got to be leading the guy on our $10 bill to be rolling in his grave. And one of the other Hamilton songs, A Farmer Refuted, shows Alexander Hamilton singing it. But truly, that's not how it went down in real life. Of course, Hamilton didn't sing publicly. Most of the Founding Fathers were just a wee bit too stiff for that. No, but that's not what I mean. Hamilton didn't identify himself publicly with the words, the words that the musical used to create this song. His own words. Hamilton wrote them, but didn't sign them under his name. He made himself anonymous. Specifically, he called himself, quote unquote, an anonymous friend. Now, you might consider himself a coward for not attaching his name to it, or you might not. The year was 1774, and Alexander Hamilton, then a 17-year-old orphan born out of wedlock on a tiny Caribbean island, found himself at King's College in New York City far from home. His childhood writing landed him there. Noted for its, quote, bombastic excesses with such verve and gusto that it moved the island community to come together and collect a fund to send the young chap to the big city. And the encouragement only encouraged him to write more. And how could he not? A revolution was underway. The Boston Massacre occurred four years earlier. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, yes, that Samuel Adams that inspired the beer, helped inspire a riot against the British for taxing them without representation for them in the British Parliament. And the British shot and killed five Americans. Then, one year earlier, came the throwing of British tea into the ocean, the Boston Tea Party. And then, that very year, came the forming of a protest government to the British, the Continental Congress. And let's just say that every American wasn't gung-ho about it. The beginning, the majority of the people were against the revolution. That's Daniel Mark Epstein, the author of The Loyal Son, the book on the greatest microcosm of America's divisions. The division of Benjamin Franklin and his own son, William. His father visited him and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries because that was his side and the family's side, and William refused. And William ended up being the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement with bread and water for 18 months and suffered terribly. Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life. 
Whatever side you claimed, you were staking a claim to, endangering your life. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence who declared, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor on behalf of this cause, nine of them did lose their lives. 17 of them lost their fortunes, making it over a third of them who lost the first two, but none of them lost the third, their sacred honor. This reality is why one-third of Americans didn't take a side in 1776. They were just hoping to survive. And according to Brad Smith, the chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, it likely was just one of the reasons, a very understandable one, why the 17-year-old Hamilton and many of the founding fathers wrote anonymously. But there were other reasons, too. Hamilton's very first published writing was a piece that he published under the title A Friend of America, and he was responding to arguments made by various loyalist preachers. Loyal to the British crown. In particular, Episcopalian Bishop Samuel Seabury, although he didn't know it was Samuel Seabury because Seabury himself used a pseudonym. He used the name A Farmer. So Hamilton responded with this letter called A Friend of America, and then Seabury, still anonymously, they didn't know who, the two of them didn't know who they were talking to. Seabury responded, and Hamilton then published this paper called A Farmer Refuted, which he published under the name A Sincere Friend of America. Apparently he thought a friend of America wasn't enough. So that's the history of it. And it was very common in those days for people to write under pseudonyms or to publish anonymously for a number of reasons, including that they wanted to not necessarily have their political disagreements overflow into the social areas where they may interact or business where they may interact. They wanted to sometimes not have their you know, harsh, plain language said to one another interfere with their ability to reach compromises on other political matters. And, and above all, there was sort of a concept that readers should look at the arguments involved and that by publishing things under pseudonyms or anonymously, you forced people to deal with the arguments rather than to attack the messenger, rather than to attack the speaker. There's a good chance that the United States would not exist were it not for anonymous speech. I think the, the role of Thomas Paine's writings in particular, Common Sense and then The Crisis, were very, very important. And you wouldn't have wanted to publish those under your own name in, in that time because you would have risked perhaps your own death. And great job on that, Alex. And what a piece of history. And by the way, it's not just speech. People's donations to causes, well, those are private matters. And we're going to be getting into the NAACP and the state of Alabama is there were people in Alabama, many white people who supported the cause of desegregation, and they gave to the NAACP. And at a certain point in time, the state of Alabama came into the NAACP and said, we want those names. And we know why the state wanted those names. They wanted to out those people, have the Klan deter those people from doing the right thing. There's a history of anonymous speech, anonymous donations, and my goodness, the ultimate anonymous act, the vote. 
Anonymous speech. Alexander's anonymous speech. The Federalist Papers themselves, folks. Written under anonymous names by three great Americans. More on this subject. It's a big one. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for the story of a song. We brought you There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Light My Fire by the Doors, Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones, and many more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our podcasts. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of great American storytelling. And now, the story behind the song, The House of the Rising Sun. Here's Jesse. I was on assignment in New Orleans, walking towards Bourbon Street, when I heard a grisly voice yelling at me from across the street. Hey, you! Do you know where you're standing? A disheveled transient yelled. I was petrified. Rather than say anything, I simply shook my head with my mouth open, thinking I was about to get robbed or shanked or both. His words echoed down the street, sending a shiver up my spine. I looked up at the bright white three-story building gleaming in the morning sun. Could this be the place? I had completely forgotten it was here. It's almost as if it found me. Like many classic folk ballads, The House of the Rising Sun is of uncertain authorship. And it turns out that this is one of several possible locations for the legendary Bordello. The oldest published version of the lyrics is that printed by Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925 in a column titled Old Songs That Men Have Sung in Adventure Magazine. The oldest known recording of the song under the title Rising Sun Blues is by Appalachian artists Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster, who recorded it on September 6th of 1933. It's a song that's been covered from artists like Dolly Parton to Nina Simone, Waylon Jennings to Joan Baez. Bob Dylan liked the song so much that he recorded it on his first album in 1962. There is a house down in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. Now, the release had no songwriting credit, but the liner notes indicate that Dylan learned this version of the song from Dave Van Ronk. Here's Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk from the documentary No Direction Home. God, I'm a one. The House of the Rising Sun is on that record. Well, I'd never done that song before, but I heard it every night because Van Ronk would do it. 
So, you know, I thought he was really onto something with the song, so I just recorded it. Bobby picked up the chord changes for the song. For me, it really altered the song considerably, although the lyric was pretty much the straight house of the rising sun lyric, and so was the melody. And when he was doing, I guess it was his first album, he asked me if I would mind if I, you know, if, if he recorded my version of House of the Rising Sun. And I had some plans to record it, so I said, well, gee, Bob, I'd rather you didn't because I'm going to record it myself soon. And Bobby said, uh-oh. The mystery of being in a recording studio did something to me, and those are the songs that came out. Now the only thing a gambler needs is a suitcase and a trunk. After he recorded it, I had to stop singing the song because people were constantly uh, accusing me of having got the song from Bobby's record. Now that was very, very annoying. But I couldn't blame that on him, and I, I didn't. The whole thing was a tempest in a teapot. Later on, when Eric Burden and the Animals picked the song up from Bobby and recorded it, Bobby told me that he had had to drop the song because everybody was accusing him of ripping it off from Eric Burden. <laughs> that version from the Animals was the most successful commercial version to date, recorded in 1964 in just one take. It was a number one hit in the UK, US, and France. Oh, mother, tell your children not to do what I have done. Spend your life in sin and misery in the house of the rising sun. When Bob Dylan first heard the Animals version on his car radio, he stopped to listen, jumped out of the car, and began banging his fists on the hood. This was the sound that made Bob Dylan switch from an acoustic guitar to an electric. Various places in New Orleans have been proposed as the inspiration for the song with varying plausibility. The phrase House of the Rising Sun is often understood as a euphemism for a brothel, but it's not known whether or not the house described in the lyrics was an actual or a fictitious place. One theory is that the song is about a woman who killed her father, an alcoholic gambler, who had beaten his wife. Therefore, the House of the Rising Sun might be a jailhouse from which one would be the first to see the sunrise an idea supported by the lyric mentioning a ball and chain, but that phrase has been slang for marital relationships for at least as long as the song has been in print. Because women often sang the song, another theory is that the House of the Rising Sun was where prostitutes were detained while treated for syphilis. Since cures with mercury were ineffective, going back was very unlikely. There are many places that could be the legendary House of the Rising Sun. One possible location was a small hotel in the French Quarter that burned down in 1822. 
Another possibility is the Rising Sun Hall, listed in the 19th century city directions, which no longer exist. And another possible location is here, at 826 St. Louis Street in the French Quarter. Between 1862 and 1874, and it was a house of ill repute, run by a Madame Marianne Lesolie Levant. Her surname means the rising sun in French. Here's the platters from 1965. And then there are some that say the building is just part of our imagination, a symbol of sin and misery in the house of the rising sun. Or to paraphrase Freud, sometimes lyrics are just lyrics. Here's Waylon Jennings. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. There is a house down in New They call the rising sun And it's been the ruin For many poor boy And me, oh God, I'm one She sewed these old blue jeans My father was a gambler A gambling needs is a suitcase and a trunk, and the only time he's ever satisfied is when he's on. A drunk Go tell My baby 
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Aretha Franklin's version of Say a Little Prayer. And why are we playing that instead of our regular introductory music? Lucinda Williams' riff from her latest record? It's simple. It's National Day of Prayer. And actually, we take these kind of things seriously here on Our American Stories, because lots of Americans do. And so we wanted to spend some time listening to some great prayers, talking about prayer, playing some music about prayer. And today is the National Day of Prayer, an annual day of observance, which began in 1952 when Congress designated the day and asked the people of this nation to turn to God in prayer and meditation. Today on the National Day of Prayer, we're going to look back at, well, prayer in all of its forms, bring you some of the most famous prayers, one you may not have ever heard before, or you may have but not known it was a prayer. And when you hear it, you're going to go, oh my goodness. Why didn't anybody ever tell me the whole thing was a prayer? I'm not going to tell you what that is, and we'll be playing it in the next segment. So you're going to have to stick around. We want to start off with George W. Bush, and it was 9-11. And let me tell you, the church pews got full, really full. And he needed to bind a nation together, and here were the words he uttered. Tonight I ask for your prayers. For all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And those words healed a nation, and for a time... Everybody in this country was on the same page, and it was terrific. Tragic, but also terrific. The best nature of ourselves revealed at that time. Next, we're going to hear a cantor, Cantor Ozzy Schwartz, leading the beautiful Jewish prayer of the fallen at a service with Pope Francis at the 9-11 memorial last year. Kedoshim tehorim Kezohar haraki 
translation in translation is O god full of compassion who dwells on high grant true rest upon the wings of the divine presence in the exalted spheres of the holy and pure who shine as the resplendence of the firmament to the souls of september 11 who has gone to his world for charity has been donated in remembrance of his soul may his place of rest be in eden Therefore, may the All-Merciful One shelter him with the cover of his wings forever and bind his soul in the bond of life. The Lord is his heritage. May he rest in his resting place in peace. And let us say, Amen. I want to close with a powerful story about prayer from 9-11 and about the man who delivered it. He was vice president for the big-time financial firm Cantor Fitzgerald, Many days he hated going to work at their World Trade Center offices. Many people made fun of his faith, and they did cruel things like leave profane screensavers on his computer. They called him the Rev. And yet all knew that Al Branco was there for them. A survivor of the first Trade Center terrorist attack in 1993, Al helped a woman with asthma get to safety. And when colleagues fell into hard times financially or in their marriages, whatever it was, they would always come to Al. And he prayed for them, and he prayed with them, despite them having made fun of him. After the first plane on September 11, 2001, struck the first tower, several Cantor Fitzgerald employees called their loved ones and said their goodbyes. Al's family did not get a call that day. As their loved ones cried on the other end of the line, many of the employees told their families, don't worry, I'm okay, we're praying with Al. There were as many as 50 people in Al's prayer circle. These were people that Al had prayed for regularly for years before without much success. But here they were now sitting together in an office that was above where the first plane hit. Of the 700 employees on their floor that day at Cantor Fitzgerald, none survived. They went into their final moments praying in the name of Jesus. They were okay. This is Our American Stories, National Day of Prayer. We focused on 9-11 even though it's far away because that's one of the days we remember while all of us were praying, believers, non-believers, we were thinking about bigger things. And when we come back, we're going to touch on, well, President Roosevelt... We're going to touch on 
Mother Teresa, when we come back. Metaxas. This was a couple of years ago at the National Prayer Breakfast. He just decided to spontaneously sing a prayer. And Aquinas, as Alex has pointed out, said, when you sing, you pray twice. And he led the uh, the, the folks who were in this breakfast into a spontaneous, into spontaneous song. I told you we were celebrating the National Day of Prayer, and I teased Mother Teresa. And here's what she says prayer means to her, not just as the individual, but what it means for the family, let's listen to Mother Teresa's thoughts. The fruit of prayer is the deepening of faith. And the fruit of faith is love. And the fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service is peace. Works of love are works of peace. That is why let us bring the tender love of God in our families. And by the way, the fruit of prayer is the deepening of faith. The fruit of faith is love. Just a perfect two sentences. Well, now let's hear Will Ferrell as Ricky Bobby and the movie Talladega Nights. I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the damn grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus... Like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. (laughs) Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, Mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money! (laughs) And so we can have fun with it, and they did there have fun with the prayer and the tradition of prayer. But now let's get down to the prayer we were telling you about, and it was FDR's. 
And it was for the D-Day invasion. And he was warning Americans of what was to come. Rather than lecture them, rather than address them, he did something unique. And on national radio, not national television, with the whole country listening. Well, take a listen. In this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. Can you imagine hearing anything like that today, folks? Let's listen to FDR as he continues to pray with and for the men and women engaged in this epic battle. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, 
And again, when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Give us strength, too, strengthen our daily tasks, to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travel, to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And here's how Roosevelt closed things out. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. A remarkable speech for remarkable times. Oh, Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in Thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. He used the C word, folks, and it was a crusade and a good one. National Day of Prayer, Roosevelt's Prayer, the D-Day Prayer, and others. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Nel cuore resterà In hope in in our heart A ricordarci che When stars go out each night L'eterna stella stella Nella mia preghiera This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. 
Jamel McGee was the brand new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down, starting with Jamel. February 8th. 2006 was the day that forever changed my life. February 8, 2006, really just another day for me. All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son. All I wanted on that day was another conviction. So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good. I had caught a guy with some crack. He knew a guy with some more crack, so we made a phone call. So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone. So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told. One guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm going to make sure he has something to do with it. So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope. I ain't got no dope. It ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up. How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible? Trial? He's going to take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's going to take it to trial? Oh, what a waste of my time. Well, I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do. So I told my story, and I got my conviction. And Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel on what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close behind him. Um, I felt like I had lost everything. There was nothing else that mattered. At this point, so my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him. Jamel continued to battle with his demons. So <clears throat> after battling with these, these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out, okay? Because I don't want to hear them. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get this thought out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice. Before it even happened, I had a choice. But I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails. My decisions led me there. So <clears throat> I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way. I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years, so I need something different. I got a son. I want to see him. I want to be able to raise him. I want to be a part of his life. So I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell, and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I was like, you know what, God, I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I want to live every day after this as if I'm at home. So I got up that morning, and my first thing to do was speak to somebody, which was very hard for me to do. And I came out, and I was just like, all right, hey. First person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy. Who is this? <laughs> like, 
But I didn't care at that point what nobody thought. Because I said, I was going to go through with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adapt this change into my life. I'm going to do something different. Here's Jamel on what happened shortly after his heart changed. I go to work this one morning, and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the council office, and he was like, the fax machine beeped, and he handed me the paper. And it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned, and I had to leave the premises immediately. So if y'all didn't catch that, we can try all we want to. It just don't work that way. It just won't work. God has the say-so. He has the ultimate plan. He did that. He, me letting that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go. Jamel served four years of his 10-year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free. So February of 2008, I get caught with crack, heroin, and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime, Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys, gone, because they were worried about their careers, rightly so. My family, having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor, because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, yeah, you do. I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I, I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me, to finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, whoo, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> I remember thinking like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. <laughs> like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus. So we knelt down there in his office and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said, amen, I was bawling and I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man, there's like a list. There's gotta be a list of things I can do. Give me a list and I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible, that's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, I don't know if you ever read that thing, pastor, but it's it's kind of boring. He's like, no, man, God did something in you today. He gave me a, a Bible that was a little easier to read for me from what I grew up in, and I started reading. I was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about Jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me. And the longer I was away from police work, the less I felt bad I got caught and the more I felt bad for what I had done. So I went to the FBI and I said, look, I want to right my wrongs. So I sat down, they put a, a stack of uh, reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need, to te- we need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. And I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case. It's a bad case. 
And this is a heck of a story. I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January 09, Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. And in February of 09, Jamel was set free. A switch. But the story does not stop there. 2010, August, I get out. So I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there, and he says, we're having this thing in August of 11 called Hoops, Hip Hop, and Hot Dogs, H3. So I said, I want to be a part of that. So I'm standing in Broadway Park, like, okay, where are the people that I need to be reconciled with? Bring them, Lord. Bring them, Lord. Benton Harbor is a small town, by the way, maybe a little too small. Here's Jamel on what happened that day. In August 2011. I got out. Um, I got to meet my son for the first time. Um, and he wanted to go to this park. It was, he's seen a lot of people standing out there. So I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. Walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, I thought I seen Andrew in, up under the pavilion. I'm like, no, that can't be him. Not in Broadway Park. And he turned around, and I'm like, yeah, that's him. In my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him, get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline, stuck out my hands. I said, hey, you remember me? And he said, yeah, and when he said it, I squeezed him. And in my mind was, Two things. It was myself again telling me to hit him. Hit him. What are you waiting on? You're taking too long. Hit him. Then God was like, hey. <laughs> God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way. I got this. Step out of my way. 
Let me avenge this for you. I got this. I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him. <laughs> hit him. And my son was right there, and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go, and I walked away. And each step I walked away, I felt lighter, I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm gonna leave that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it, I'll never see him again anyway. What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison. So I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life, where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before, and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises or they went out and got jobs with uh, a community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? <laughs> one day, Miss Princella comes down because she runs Jobs for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I want to introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, I said, no, I know the street name. I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. <laughs> God's funny, right? <laughs> so I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like? Ooh. Yeah. It was like um, she came over and was, I was sitting in class. Everybody had a mentor. And she was like, yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, yeah, God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor, mentee. And um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentor. I'm like, okay, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no way. There's no way I'm doing that. Jamel wasn't finished. She was like, okay, fine, we'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Miss P. That was my decision. Let me pray on that real fast. Because I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision. So I wanted to be God's decision. So I prayed, and I opened my eyes, and there was a book on my desk, and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words, and it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident this is the path 
you want me to take, I'm going to take it. All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives. And it's not just Christians, it's Jews, it's Muslims. Because sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride. Men particularly, women too, pride. The thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said, that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. How you could have left that out of this story, which, by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it, it was covered. And this was left out, this prayer, God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring, a guy who had only been referred to as Zookie. So we sit down and I say, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in the city of Ben Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. I'm like, what is this dude smiling at? This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park. And I was like, oh, shoot. And I just went to apologize and do, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance. I'm so sorry. He said, I know. And he was like offended. I know. I said, dude, there's got to be something I can do. He's like, no, no, no. It's over. It's over. You were sorry then and I trusted that. And I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore. It's forgiven. It's done. I was like, dude, can we, can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray? <laughs> He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes. And we prayed that. And he got up, we said amen. He got up and walked out because he had an appointment to get to and I went in the back and cried like a child because I felt forgiven. <laughs> and then I was, we were meeting every week and I was like, yo, bro, we, we need an employee in the cafe and you need a job. Uh, are you, do uh, you need a job? He's like, yeah, I need a job. You know I need a job. I said, well, how about this? Because what if, what if I hire you or what if we hire you and, and you'd be, and are you a good worker? Because if I've got to write you up, things are already tense enough, you know? Like, ah. <laughs> and he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude smiled. It's like, it breaks down all board. He's like, no, man, no, I got you. I got you. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I'd never seen somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for, for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? <laughs> He'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure. Because I don't want to be at the cash register someday and then just get your big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, bro, no. We're good. And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, and true reconciliation by two guys who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. And that he was able to say to this guy, it's over, it's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. 
I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well, let's all make beauty from ashes. If this story can teach us one thing, it's possible. And so we're so happy to have brought you Andrew's story, Jamel's story, this story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan. It could be happening all over this country, folks. And if the media would only report the source of so much of this reconciliation, not the fake reconciliation they talk about in the news, this is the real thing. And something tells me God's behind a lot of it. Their stories here on Our American Stories.